Um, Monique and I this week were in New York, been doing a lot of traveling, and I'm looking forward to staying home <laughs> for the next few months. But we were there for an important uh, dialogue. Uh, it's something called the Borough Park Symposium, which about every four years, Messianic Jewish scholars gather in New York. And this year, and it's from people from across the spectrum of, of Jewish believers. Actually, um, I was with Dana's dad, Joe Shulam, and, and others from around the world. And this year was especially interesting because there were uh, not only our own Messianic Jewish scholars presenting papers and, and discussions and responses on important matters, but this year they also invited mainstream scholars from the wider Jewish community who are very well known to dialogue with our own Messianic Jewish scholars. So we had Dr. Jody Magnus, who's a very famous archeologist that, uh, who specializes in the Second Temple period. We had Dr. Amy Jill Levine, who is probably one of the preeminent Jewish scholars of the New Testament. Uh, we also had uh, Rudolfo Reutemann, who is the curator of the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Yaakov Ariel, who's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina, who is now going to be one of our main speakers at our UMJC conference next summer. So it was a really wonderful time to be able to dialogue and interact with mainstream Jewish scholars as a Messianic Jewish community and as Messianic Jewish scholars. Um, and it was really uh, beneficial not only as a community, but I know for me personally, I had some really great opportunities to uh, to interact the whole weekend with Dr. Amy Jill Levine and her own personal encouragement for me in my own doctoral process. So, um, but it's nice to be back, but you know, picked up a little bit of a cold in, in New York. So as most of you know, over this past, uh, well, year since the high holidays, we've been going through the book of Matthew. And so this week we find ourselves in chapter 11. But before we delve right into chapter 11, I want to step back for just a moment and look at chapter 10. So chapter 10 describes Yeshua's choosing of his inner core of disciples, the 12, right? People always think Yeshua only had 12 disciples. If, if that were the case, that wasn't a very effective ministry, right? I mean, not to say that, right? We're always told, like, one for the sake of the kingdom is worth it, right? But you would expect the Mashiach to have at least more than 12 followers. But we forget that he had thousands of followers, and yet within the thousands that we know that there were hundreds of them who would follow him around, and there were specifically 70, 70 who would follow him around. And among those kind of inner core of disciples, Yeshua chose to invest most of his time in 12 of them which makes sense, right? That you pick a specific number of people to mentor and to disciple because you know that through them, then they can then reach out further. And that's exactly what happened, that those 12 people ended up changing the world, right? Turned it upside down. So, Yeshua, so chapter 10 describes Yeshua's choosing of his 12 inner core of disciples, and gave them spiritual authority, it says, to drive out unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and weakness. We also have his earliest teachings directed to his disciples, which are largely warnings to use discernment and to pay attention. But we also are taught some things that to some might seem pretty jarring and many would like to ignore. So, of course, those are the ones I want to look at, right? <laughs> the things that are hardest, the things that are the most difficult. And what we read back in last, uh, 
in the last chapter of chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. So these 12 Yeshua sent out with the following instructions. Don't go into the territory of the Gentiles and don't enter any town in Samaria, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those afflicted with Zara'at. What is Zara'at? Ah, my poor sad people. I'm just kidding. No, uh, that's the way most of us are used to hearing this word translated as leprosy. But remember, from a Jewish perspective, the word sara'at doesn't mean leprosy. Instead, it describes some kind of a spiritual disease that has a physical manifestation. And the reason why that's true, if you've heard sermons of mine before, as we talk about sara'at as the way it's talked about in the Torah, is if this were a, a skin disease that we knew about, then there, the way it's described does not make any sense in the Torah. You would never treat a physical skin disease the way that we do. For example, if you have a little bit of tzara'at, you are ritually impure. But if the tzara'at covers your entire body, you are you're pure, right? There are other things like this that render uh, our understanding of tzara'at as some kind of a spiritual condition. Remember, what happens when... Uh, Miriam, Yeshua, not Yeshua's mother, <laughs> Moses's sister, when she criticizes Moses as a leader, what is she afflicted with? Zara'at. So the rabbis say, based on that and other things, that Zara'at is the result of sinat chinam, hatred against fellow people and speaking ill of other people. That when you do this, when you have that kind of hatred, that it does something to you. That carrying around that kind of hatred and bitterness results in a, in a spiritual and a physical condition known as tzara'at. So, but whether it's this spiritual case or uh, a physical, the point is they were able to cleanse and heal this this affliction of tzara'at. And it says they were able to expel demons and you have received without paying, so give without asking payment. Don't take money in your belts, nor gold, nor silver, nor copper. And, the trip, and for the trip, don't take a pack, an extra shirt, shoes, or a walking stick. A worker should be given what he needs. In verses five and six, Yeshua clearly instructs his disciples not to go to the Gentiles or even the Samaritans because it says Yeshua's primary focus was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this can seem really jarring, right? And what we do know is that Yeshua had a tendency that to only go to areas where there were Jews. We only have a couple references where Yeshua ever ventures and does any kind of work in areas outside of Israel. We have a mention of him going to Samaria, and we have a mention of him going to the Decapolis, right, the 10 cities that are beyond on the other side of the Jordan, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where now we have Gentile communities. And then we have another passage where he goes into the region which is modern-day um, Lebanon on the coast, in which in chapter 15, this is chapter 15, we read, verse 21, Yeshua left that place and went off to the region of Tzor and Sidon. And a woman from Canaan who was living there came to him pleading, Sir, have pity on me, son of David. My daughter is cruelly held under the power of demons. But Yeshua did not say a word, or, a word to her. 
Then his Talmudim came to him and urged him, send her away because she is following us and keeps pestering us with her crying. And he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, fell at his feet and said, sir, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's food and toss it to their pet dogs. She said, that is true, sir, but even the dogs eat the leftovers that fall from the master's table. Then Yeshua answered her, lady, you are a person of great trust. Let your desire be granted. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. So what's going on here? The reason why I say most people want to ignore this is because it's complicated. Why does Yeshua treat this Gentile, the, both the, in these both examples, why does he treat the Gentile people in this less than the way he would treat somebody from Israel? I don't think it's as much as less than. I think it's rather, than a, a, rather a focus. And if you even look at Yeshua's response, he said, I have this food that is supposed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? And, but because of this woman's faith that he heals her. Now, I know it's easy, and there are a lot of Bible scholars who like to say, look, this is just proof that, you know, he's a, a typical rabbi of the time, doesn't care about the Gentiles, and so therefore, he's only going to those who are Jewish. So for example, most of us know Chabad Lubavitch today, right? You know, they go around and, and they're proselytizing, but who do they proselyze to? Not, not Gentiles, right? They go to Jews and try to get Jews who are secular to become more religious, right? And if you happen to be Gentile, sometimes they'll be nice to you, but most of the time you're a little bit dismissed, right? And so a lot of people say, oh, this is what Yeshua was doing. I don't think Yeshua is doing exactly this. I, instead, as the Messiah, I think he has a particular focus. And by the way, this is not unique to, to Yeshua. We see this over and over and over again until a decision is made in Acts 15, right? Which is De a few decades later. And Paul writes, not just one place, but a few times in the book of Romans, he writes that the gospel is to the Jews first. And a lot of people want to drop that, right? To the Jew first. But then it says, but also to the Gentiles. So something changes, right? That you still have this priority to the Jews, but now the message is also supposed to go out to the Gentiles, and we know this from Acts 15. There's so much here, by the way, that we, if, I, if we had time, this is a whole sermon in and of itself, but you've heard this a little bit before, so we're just sort of recapping. So why is there this priority? If Yeshua says, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but by the way, he does end up focusing on Gentiles, but when is it? at the end, right, in his ascension. Right before he goes, he finally says, by the way, I'm changing the rules a little bit, right? Now don't only go to Israel. Now make disciples of all people into followers of Messiah, right? So even though Yeshua himself, his own personal priority was to Israel, he then sends his followers out to the nations. But he says... Go first from, you know, Judea, then Samaria, and then indeed to the uttermost parts of the earth, it says in the beginning of Acts. So there's still a priority even in the way that they take the message out. First to Israel, then to Samaria. Why Samaritans? Because they're sort of almost Jews, right? They're this weird mix of people. Their religion is a form of Judaism, just not the right kind of Judaism because it's not Jerusalem temple-based. It's, 
you know, they have their own thing, and they're mixed, right? That they were mixed with other peoples of the world. So they were kind of viewed as like sort of tainted um, because they weren't fully Jewish from their perspective. Now, I know that sounds harsh in the way that we view things today, but this is an actual expanding of the kingdom and should be viewed in a healthy, prophetic way. Because what Yeshua is doing is the reason why Paul and Yeshua and the disciples had this priority, why is it? Is it because they were racist or any kind of thing that we'd like to put a label on them? No, it's a priority of covenant. Until Yeshua, who are the people that have a covenant relationship with God? Jews, right? And the promises are to who? To Jews, right? Now, but what's interesting and the reason why this changes, the reason why Yeshua then expands his ministry is because we have these people called the prophets, right? And what is the job of a biblical prophet? So they, they have two primary roles. The primary role of a biblical prophet is not to tell the future, <laughs> right? It's not to tell the future. The role of a biblical prophet is to tell Israel, you are screwing up, and unless you change things, God is either going to reward or punish you, right? It's one of these two things. So if you change your ways, God will reward you. If you don't change your ways, God will punish you. Now, I'm not saying that they're not at times ways in which the prophets talk about a future time, but that's not their primary focus. Their primary focus is to call Israel back in the ways of covenant faithfulness. But in this covenant faithfulness, they do talk about a time, a time in which this message will go out to everybody, right? For example, it's in the prophets that we have verses like, my house will be called a house of prayer for all people, right? We have that, the, the, that the, the fullness of the knowledge of God will go out across the world as the water covers the earth, right? So it's in the prophets, not saying that there isn't a little bit in the, in the Torah, but it's really in the prophets that all of a sudden we get this picture that God is not only concerned with Israel, but he's concerned with the nations of the world. But that doesn't quite happen completely yet. And it's not until Yeshua that the doors are opened, right? That that veil in the temple is rent, which not only means Jews have access to God, but now so does everybody who puts their trust in Yeshua. And this is why Paul can then write, based on the decision of Acts 15. What is Acts 15? This is, again, one of the, the most important chapters in the entire New Testament. It basically says, you do not have to convert to Judaism in order to be a follower of Yeshua, right? That God loves you just as you are. And so therefore, Paul is able to write in Ephesians 2 and 3 that Gentiles, not through conversion, not through becoming Jews, simply through faith in Yeshua, have the same access to God as Jews do and therefore share in the same spiritual rewards. And he calls the Gentiles co heirs, right, to the promise. He doesn't call them Jews, right? They're not Jews, but they are simply through faith sharers in the rewards, the spiritual blessings of the Jewish people. This is pretty cool. So the priority is covenantal, but it's not meant to stop there, right? Instead, being the Messiah, Yeshua, part of being the Messiah is the Messiah of Israel, but you can't stop there because if Yeshua really is the Messiah, he's the Messiah also for the world. And that's what ends up happening. The reason I mention this is because this also instructs the model and priority of a messianic synagogue. 
we're not a typical congregation that follows Yeshua. We are, in one sense, of our theology, but a Messianic synagogue follows this covenantal priority of to the Jew first, but also for Gentiles, right? That's one of the things that makes Messianic synagogues unique. Now, let's jump in, for the sake of time, to chapter 11. After Yeshua had finished, it says in verse 1, chapter 11, after Yeshua had finished instructing the 12 Talmudim, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns nearby. So what did it look like? It says that he went from there to preach in the towns. So what did he do in these towns? Well, the answer to that was back at the end of chapter 9, where it says in verse 35, Yeshua went about all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Where did he teach? In the synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and weakness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harried and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his Talmudim, the harvest is rich, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers to gather in his harvest. So this is what Yeshua was doing, right? He was going around, speaking in the synagogues, healing people, and, and preaching a message of inclusion. Sorry, I lost my spot. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to, oh, here we are. All right. Something weird happened with my notes. They're ever, the top of every one is labeled page one of four. <laughs> so it doesn't help to go by which page number I was on, because at the top it all says page one of four. So they're all page one, which is a little confusing. So. <laughs> right, so I have no way of... All right, I think I found where I am. I'm, I so apologize for that. It all looks familiar, so I might have to just go with uh, just opening the text and going from there. So, all right. This is so weird. <laughs> right. This is also true because I'm a little bit drugged up today. Um, all right, so Yeshua went about all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. This is what he was doing. So then we move on to a very fascinating narrative that Yeshua has this interaction with John the Immerser, right? So in verse 2 we read, Meanwhile, John the Immerser, Yochanan Hamatbil, who had been put in prison, heard what the Messiah had been doing. So he sent a message to him through his Talmudim, asking, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for somebody else? I love this. For those of you who didn't hear my message uh, a couple of months ago on John the Immerser, I really encourage you to go back and to listen to that message, because I believe John the Immerser is one of the most overlooked people 
in the entire New Testament. That apart from Yeshua, he is one of the most important people who ever lived. And how do we know that? Well, he had a lot of followers and he had a lot of influence. So unfortunately, well, and fortunately, because he did fulfill his role, you, everything usually get, the attention gets focused on Yeshua. And I'm not saying that that's not well-deserved, right? What I'm saying, though, is we've also lost the importance of John the Immerser. And we know of that decades later, we have an example in Acts where Priscilla and Aquila are, I believe it's Priscilla and Aquila, are working and they come across a person who only knew of the immersion of John, right? So he only was half the story. And so they have to fill him in. I think this is, um, anyway, uh, Apollos, isn't it? Is it Apollos who... And so, but the interesting thing is we have mentions, not just in Acts, but in other places, that John's ministry far outlived him. His disciples spread just like Yeshua's disciples, and many of those disciples ended up following Yeshua because they understood that John's work ended up sort of pointing to and preparing for the way of Yeshua. And so that's what happens here. Now, John does something interesting. It says that, meanwhile, John the Immerser, who had been put in prison, heard what, the, heard what the Messiah had been doing. Why is John in prison? Right. So if we look in Mark 6, it says, For Herod had sent and had John arrested and chained in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Herod had married her, but John had told him it violates the Torah for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not accomplish it because Herod stood in awe of John and protected him for he knew that he was a tzaddik, a holy man. Whenever he heard him, he became deeply disturbed, yet he liked to listen to him. So Herod did, because of his wife, have him arrested. Ultimately, he has him beheaded. But this is while, this didn't happen immediately. It wasn't like he was thrown in jail and then the next day <laughs> he gets beheaded. Unfortunately, kind of like Paul, he ends up spending quite a bit of time in prison. And so while John is in prison, he sends a message to his cousin. And he basically says, hey, cuz, <laughs> we grew up together. I want to know, are you really the Messiah? That's the question he asks him. Are you the one that we are to expect or should we look for somebody else, right? Are you it? Which makes sense. This isn't a question of the, you know, questioning the faith of John because remember, all of Yeshua's immediate family didn't believe he was the Messiah. It was only after his death and resurrection that they became followers as well. His mother kind of knew something was up, remember? Because it says she criticized him, but then it says she kept the matter in mind, right? Saying, eh, there's something here <laughs> a little bit. It's kind of like Joseph's dad, right? You know, he scolds him after the dreams that you're going to bow down to me and I'm going to be kind of a big deal. And it says his father scolds him, but also keeps the matter in mind, like, Maybe he's right. <laughs> Maybe there's something here that's going on. So this is what happens. Now, the response is fascinating. The response, as I've mentioned before in a previous sermon, that one on John the Immerser, that there's a little bit of a nod that happens in Yeshua's response. Yeshua doesn't say to the disciple of John who sent there with the message, why don't you just go back and tell John yes? <laughs> Anybody can say yes, right? Instead, he gives a response. He says, while John is in prison, he sends word to Yeshua through one of his disciples. 
And he says, Yeshua responds by saying, go and tell John what you are hearing and what you are seeing. He doesn't say, go back and tell him what I said. Instead, he says, go back and tell him what you are hearing and seeing. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are being raised and the poor hear the good news and how blessed is anyone not offended by me. Remember, from a Jewish perspective, talk is always cheap. Actions speak louder than words. Don't listen to what I say. Instead, go back and tell John what you are witnessing and you are hearing. And what he does, Yeshua responds by quoting Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 was interpreted at this time and later times as a messianic passage. This is a passage that the Messiah will do. So by Yeshua responding to John, he's telling him, this is what the Messiah is supposed to do. This is what you are witnessing and hearing. You, put, you do the math, right? If you are seeing these things, then I'm the Messiah. But he gives one more little subtle detail, a detail that is not in Isaiah 61, where it says the dead are being raised. In Isaiah 61, that's missing except for one place. Yeshua responds with a, messi with a messianic pas passage from Isaiah on purpose. Why? Because, as I mentioned, in Jewish thought, talk is cheap. Yeshua does not respond merely with words, but rather with a demonstration that he indeed is the Messiah. But Yeshua wants John to know for sure. So, Yeshua, knowing John and the fact that most people believe that John spent time in Qumran, which is the site, right, and connected with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so he adds a small detail that he knew that only John could catch. In his quote of Isaiah 61.1, Yeshua adds these words, the dead are being raised, in a detail, as I mentioned, not found in, a, in the Masoretic text, meaning like our common Bible of Isaiah 61. The only other place this particular phrasing of Isaiah 61.1 has ever been found with the added words, the dead are being raised, is in the Dead, the dead Sea Scrolls, in a text known as 4Q521, which is just a fancy way to say K4, Q is the Qumran collection of manuscripts, and 521 is the number of the scroll that it's been found. So in my opinion, this was a sort of a personal nod or wink to John adding greater, greater emphasis in his response. Go tell John that you're seeing Isaiah 61 fulfilled. He didn't say Isaiah 61 because they didn't have chapters then, right? But instead, he cites the passage, and everybody would have known that he's talking about a messianic passage, and you are seeing this fulfilled, therefore, I'm the Messiah. But just in case you're questioning even that, I'm going to slip in this little detail that I know, John, that you'll catch that probably nobody else will because it's something that you would have learned from your time at Qumran. Now, we don't have time to go into that. That's the other sermon, but it's a cool little detail. And then we go on here. As they were leaving, Yeshua began speaking about John to the crowds. What did you go out to the desert to see? Reeds swaying in the breeze? This is what was read earlier. No, then what did you go out to see? Someone who was well-dressed? Well-dressed people lives in, live in king's palaces, new. So why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, he's much more than a prophet. This is the one whom the Tanakh says, see, I am sending you out, I'm sending out my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way of the Lord. What is the text that Yeshua just cited there? Where is it from? It's from Malachi, right? Malachi chapter 3. 
Why is this significant? Well, let's just read just a few verses from Malachi chapter 3. Look, I am sending my messenger to clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Yes, the message the messenger of the covenant in whom you take such delight. Look, here he comes, says Adonai Tzvaot. And if we were to go to the very end of that chapter, it says, behold, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming great and terrible day of Adonai. This is Elijah imagery. And why does that matter? Because remember earlier, John the Baptist is talked about in the imagery of Elijah, right? He wears camel's hair. He has a, a belt tied around his waist and he eats uh, locusts and honey out in the desert. This is exactly the same description as John, as, um, as the prophet Eliyahu, as the prophet Elijah. And so there's an important connection that the Gospels want you to make with Elijah. Why do you have to have Elijah connected with the Messiah? Right, because Elijah is the one who's supposed to usher in the Messiah. This is why to this day, in Jewish tradition, we want to welcome Elijah. Why do we welcome Elijah? Because the idea is if Elijah shows up at our Seder, guess who's going to be with him? Mashiach, right? And this is even what we sing when we sing the Eliyahu Hanavi, right? Is we say, Come speedily and soon with Messiah, the son of David. And Luke tells us, the Gospel of Luke tells us that John the Immerser came in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? He wasn't a reincarnation of Elijah. Instead, he was the typology of Elijah who is going to, you know, usher in the Messiah's first coming. And who do we know is going to usher in the second coming? It'll be straight up Elijah, right? Not somebody in the spirit and power of Eliyahu. It'll be Elijah himself. So Malachi here likens himself to Elijah. That's why he quotes that. And then John the Immerser is also described as Elijah. And so there's a purposeful connection why Yeshua is saying that John is the fulfillment of this, right? Malachi was only prophesying about it. And now Yeshua is saying this is straight up happening. And that messenger that we've been waiting for, who is going to usher in the Messianic age, is none other than, none other than John the Immerser. This is why he then goes on to say in verse 11, Yes, I tell you that among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Immerser. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the time of Yochanan the Immerser, until, from the time of John the Immerser until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. Yes, violent ones are trying to snatch it away. This could refer to all kinds of things. The tumultuous circumstances in which Israel finds itself, the fact that over and over and over again, different kingdoms come, they uh, destroy Israel, take, it, take the Jews into captivity, and try to you know, establish their own kingdom in its place. And yet, they're overthrown. And every time that happens, it happens in violence, right? The Babylonian exile, right? The Assyrian conquest, even before that, later the Romans coming into Israel and eventually destroying the temple. Over and over and over again, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent people try to take the power of God by force, and they can't do it. Indeed, if you are willing to accept it, he is Eliyahu. Not literally, but he's saying this is the fulfillment of this. He is Eliyahu, whose coming was predicted. If you have ears, then hear. And if you have ears, if you can tell what's going on, then you will be able to understand the times in which we live and why this is straight up important. He goes on to say in conclusion, 
of this week's uh, New Testament passage. Oh, what can I compare this generation with? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to one another. We had happy music, but you wouldn't dance. We had sad music, but you wouldn't cry. For John came fasting, not drinking, so they say he has a demon. The son of man came, eating freely and drinking wine, so they say, aha, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, the proof of wisdom is in the actions it produces, right? The people who can't see will use any excuse. John came in one way and people assaulted him. Yeshua came in another way and people assaulted him and made up all kinds of excuses because it says they couldn't tell the times in which they lived. So the question is to us, do we understand the times in which we live? Do we understand the importance of what we read that our time that we're spent with God in prayer all of these things are supposed to teach us and speak to us. But unless we have ears, we will not hear. Unless we have eyes, we will not see. And obviously, that isn't literal. It's spiritual. Because so many of us have eyes, and yet we don't see. So many of us have ears, but don't hear. So my blessing to each and every one of us is that we would be people who see that we would be people who hear, that Beth Emunah would be a place in which we recognize the times and the seasons and what God wants to do, what God is doing. That we would really take this message and wrestle with it, that we would chew on it, that it would change our lives for the better. So that we can be in a way like John the Immerser, whose role was to repair the way of the Lord. I don't know when Yeshua is going to come back, but I know that we're supposed to be about his business, preparing the way for the kingdom of heaven, to prepare the way for Messiah's return, that that's our job. So God, help us to do a better job of that. Help us to do your will when our feelings are always to want to do our own way. But God, I pray that you would increase in us and that we would decrease, not only as, as individuals, but as a community, that the power of God would move in us and through us so that not only we can change the world, but we ourselves would be changed in the process. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. So please rise as we turn in our prayer books to the Elenu, beginning on page 85, page 85. Alenu le shabeach la adon hakol, la tet gedula leo 